So good morning. I um, thought I'd start by reading you a, uh, from the not so sacred uh, um, a poem. A poem. Here you go. Um, it's called "Wisdom of a Ten-Year-Old Boy." Teachers teach, preachers preach. Do you know what's going on in the head of each? Serious, 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 serious. And there's no healing power in serious. Ooh. <laughs> okay, having um, dug a hole for myself. <laughs> I um, Yes, today, what, what I'm going to talk about repentance. Last week, we talked about Jesus being God's yes to humans. Yes, I choose you. Yes, I love you. I choose you. And that faith is us saying yes back to Jesus. I trust you. And uh, and it, I, I center around Jesus because for Christians, that's how you know who God is. And in many ways, Jesus is the front door to the good news. More than anything else, I want people to know Jesus. And I hope you do too. But if you listened to me last week, you could have walked away and said, well, hang on, Colin, you didn't talk about repentance at all, so I'm going to have a go about talking about repentance. But how can I do that if I've just read you a poem about not being too serious? Because if it's repentance, well, I should be banging the pulpit, telling us that we should all repent. And I do think that if you want to follow Jesus, repentance is a constant. It's not just something that happens at the doorway of faith. It's something that we come across again and again and again because we consistently think I'm right. Well, I think I'm right, of course. And then I find out that I'm not, that I missed a bit. And so I think repentance is a constant cry. And at Parklands, we love the Bible. We're committed to reading it. So, and there's an entire book about repentance in the Bible. I thought, well, let's have a look at it. Yep. And um, so it's a whale of a tale. It's the book of Jonah. Now... And it is actually a comedy. You may uh, not get that. You think your dad's jokes are old. Well, these are jokes that are much older, and so it may not stick with you. And then I was thinking, actually, last week, um, Kim did us the favor of talking about the Bible in one year, an app that you can load up on your smart device or go to a website and they'll email the contact for you. Um, Holly Trinity Brompton, Nikki Gumbel, and is it Pippa? Yep, thank you. And Pippa, um, they'll send you a kind of a devotion and some readings. And in fact, uh, if you're on a rush, you can have it read to you, which is really nice. If you're in the car, you could drive and listen to a devotion. Um, and it's, yeah, okay. So, and so there's the website, Bible in One Year. But there's another place, I'm sorry, if we find something good, we'd like to let you know. Um, there's another website that's really cool, another place to go, and it's called The Bible Project. Now, in the Bible Project, if you search for this on YouTube, you just get a bunch of videos, but there's a website, and there is an app for reading through the Bible. They actually have um, uh, pictures, as you can see, cartoons, illustrating books of the Bible and what they're about. And they give you quite a lot of background information, and I've listened to a lot of them now, and I have to say that the biblical background that they're giving you is really good. This is somewhere, somewhere in this mix, there's someone who is a genuine biblical scholar, theologian. The stuff they're giving you is superb. So I'm a big fan of the Bible Project, and I thought, and I must be a big fan, 
I'd illustrate it to you by showing you nine, a nine-minute video, which in terms of a message is a long thing, of what the Bible Project has to say about Jonah. Okay, after that, I'll get up, tell you just a couple of things, and then I'll read you a poem, and that will be the message. Okay, so obviously, I think they're good. I thought if I did this, if you are reading a book in the Bible and you don't get it, have a look at the Bible Project. It gives you an intro to the book. It's also got some stunning stuff on um, words and concepts in the Bible, so covenant, that kind of thing. Yep? They also give you context for how it was written in those days. Yep. So um, I would, I've always banged on about a book called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. It's a brilliant primer if you're studying something. Um, but this one, you can get the same kind of information, but you get it, someone reading it to you, and the pictures are quite fun. Okay? Also, the kids at the back have got an A3 sheet of paper with the entire thing that they're illustrating there on it, so they can colour it in now. So what I'm about to do, guys, is play the vid that's the thing that you're colouring in. So if you follow it, now there'll be more information than you can retain, Okay, and that's okay, let it wash over you. And at the end of it, we'll have a little talk about what happens from there. So you're ready? I'm going to sit down. I'm going to tell you that Jonah seems to be about a process of changing, inviting us to change our minds, that this is a book about repentance. And then I'm going to let someone with an American accent take over. Okay, here we go. And I'll go sit down. The book of Jonah a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Jonah's unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of God's words spoken through the prophet. But this book doesn't actually focus on the words of the prophet. Rather, it's a story about a prophet, a really mean and nasty prophet. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in his favor, promising that he would win a battle and regain all this territory on Israel's northern border. Now, it's important to know that the prophet Amos also confronted Jeroboam, and through him, God specifically reversed Jonah's prophecy, promising that Jeroboam would lose all of those same territories because he was so horrible. So before the story of Jonah even begins, we are suspicious of Jonah's character. The book of Jonah has a beautiful design with all this literary pairing and symmetry. So you have chapters 1 and 3 telling the story of Jonah's encounter with non-Israelites, first with some sailors and then with Jonah's hated enemies, the Ninevites. And each part offers a comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness and the pagans' humility and repentance. Chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of, and the other is a prayer in which Jonah chews out God for being too nice. Now, this careful design of the book is matched by a really unique style of narration. The story is full of all of these stereotyped characters who, ironically, do the exact opposite of what you think they would do. So you have the prophet, the man of God, who rebels and hates his own God. You have the sailors who are supposed to be really immoral, but actually they have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. You have the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God because of Jonah. Jonah's five-word sermon, and even the king's cows repent. This kind of story fits what today we would call satire. These are stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. 
Let's just dive in and we'll see how all the pieces work together. The story opens as God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go preach against the evil and injustice in Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's bitter enemy. But instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the opposite direction, finding a ship going as far west as you can go to Tarshish. Now the big question here is why? Why does Jonah run? Is he afraid? Does he just not like Ninevites? And we're not told yet. So the man of God tries to run from God, and he boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down into the ship, and then he falls asleep. So God sends a huge storm to wake up his prophet, while ironically the sailors above board are wide awake to everything that's happening. They can discern that there's a divine power at work here. So they throw the dice, and they discover that Jonah, he is the culprit. So they ask Jonah to explain himself, and Jonah spouts off a whole bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. He says, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land. What a joke, right? God made the sea and the dry land all right, and Jonah's dumb enough to run from this God by getting on a boat? And when the sailors ask Jonah what they should do, he says, kill me, right, by throwing me overboard, which kind of seems noble at first until you realize this could actually be his most selfish move yet. I mean, what better way to avoid going to Nineveh? So he puts his blood on these innocent sailors' hands by trying to force them to kill him. They're reluctant, of course, and they repent to God even as they toss him over. The storm subsides, and they end up fearing the God of Israel, and unlike Jonah, they actually worship God. But God foils Jonah's plans to escape Nineveh. As Jonah's sinking, God provides this strange watery tomb for him, the stomach of a large fish. Now, of course, under normal circumstances, this would be certain death. But in this story, everything's upside down. And so Jonah's submarine death becomes his passage back to life. Cramped in the stomach of this beast, Jonah utters a prayer where he never technically says that he's sorry, but he does thank God for not abandoning him. And he promises that he will obey God from this point on, no matter what. And God's response is quite comic. The whale vomits Jonah back onto dry land. So once again, God commissions Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, and Jonah complies. We're told that Nineveh was a gigantic city. It would take days to walk through. So Jonah gets one day in, and here is his message. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. Now, his sermon is very short, and it's also odd. I mean, look at what's missing. There's no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong, or of what they should do to respond. There's no mention of who might overturn them. And most noticeable, there's no mention of God. What's going on here? Has Jonah intentionally given the bare minimum of information? It's like he's trying to sabotage his own message or ensure the Ninevites' destruction. There's just no effort on Jonah's part here. Whatever his motives are, the plan doesn't work. Because no sooner does he utter this five-word sermon that the king of Nineveh, the entire city, including all its cows, repent in sorrow and ashes. So for the second time, these evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive than God's own prophet. So God forgives the Ninevites, and he doesn't bring destruction on the city. Now, here's the brilliant part of the story. The last word of Jonah's short sermon, overturned, means just that, turned over. And it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed, like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it can also be used of something being transformed, like turned over and changed into its opposite. 
And so, comically, Jonah's words actually came true, but not in the way that he intended. Nineveh does get turned over as Jonah's enemies repent and find God's mercy. The final chapter brings all the pieces together. Jonah, he's fuming mad, and he utters his second prayer. He first tells God why he ran away back in chapter 1. It was not because he was afraid. Rather, it was because he knew that God was so merciful. And this is great. Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself from the book of Exodus, and he throws it back in God's face as an insult. He says he knew that God is compassionate and that you would find some way to forgive these horrible Ninevites. You can just hear the disgust in Jonah's voice. Jonah then cuts off the conversation and he prays that God would kill him on the spot. He'd rather die than live with the God who forgives his enemies. Fortunate for Jonah, God doesn't comply and simply asks if Jonah's anger is even justified. Jonah ignores the question and he goes outside the city to camp on a nearby hill waiting to see what might happen. You know, the Ninevites might repent of their repentance and get roasted after all. What happens next is very odd. God provides this viney plant to shade Jonah from the sun, and that makes him quite happy. But then God sends a tiny worm to eat up the plant, and so Jonah loses his shade. And there, in the heat of the sun, Jonah asks again that God kill him. So God, again, asks Jonah if his anger is justified, and Jonah barks back, absolutely just let me die. And those are Jonah's last words in the story. God's final words are what concludes the book. He says that this whole vine incident was an attempt to get through to Jonah, right? Jonah got all concerned and emotional over this vine, which he only enjoyed for a day. And God asked Jonah, you know, aren't humans a bit more valuable than vines? I mean, isn't it okay if God might feel the same kind of emotion and concern for the city of Nineveh that's full of thousands of people who have lost their way and also their cows? And that's how the book ends, with God asking Jonah for permission to show mercy to his enemies. And what is Jonah's answer? The story doesn't say, because that's not the point. The point is that the book is trying to mess with you. And God's questions here are actually addressed to you, the reader. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemy? And so this book holds a mirror up to the one who reads it. In Jonah, we see the worst parts of our own character magnified, which should generate humility and gratitude that God would love his enemies and put up with the Jonah in all of us. And so this strange story actually becomes a message of good news about the wideness of God's mercy that ought to challenge us to the core. And that's the book of Jonah. than me. There's that kind of video for every book in the Bible. Um, you can pull it up on YouTube. It's free. So may I commend it? And then let's talk about Jonah. It's almost too much information. Who here has read Pride and Prejudice? Mm, a few, a few. Who had to read it as a school exercise? If you did, you're accepted from... Um, I read, first time I read Pride and Prejudice, I just didn't get what people were on about. Why are people raving about this book? Because I didn't realize it was funny. I didn't, it was, I read this, it's a comedy. I didn't realize it was a comedy of manners. And the second time I read it, and I noticed how dry Mr. Bennett's sense of humor is, how cutting, that kind of stuff. 
It's a comedy, and it can, comedy can say things that other things can't. I think this book is astonishing. Um, uh, here's a connection you won't have made. Anyone like to guess what the connection is between Donald Trump and the book of Jonah? You wouldn't think there's a connection, but there is, and uh, it's okay if you're a Donald Trump fan, this is not offensive. This, this is the word that comes up again and again and again in the book of Jonah. Great. It's not just the city of Nineveh, it's, the great, it's not just a wind, it's a great wind. It's not just a fear, it's a great fear. Over and over and over again, the, word uses the, word, uh, the book uses the word great because it's like an episode of The Simpsons, it's larger than life, it's bigger. And I even, did you know there's a Hebrew word for bigly? No, there isn't. But I just couldn't resist. And that wasn't funny. <laughs> um, Jonah is like Homer Simpson. He's the person who does everything wrong. Everything that he should do, he does something else. Even his prayer is all about him. And that is sometimes where we are. We cannot help but make life about us because that's the bit we know best. And when we do so, we're swallowed up in our emotions and our default prejudices. And we all have them. And how do you get rescued from that? And this, I love this bit of Jonah. It takes three days to walk through the city. So if you're going to deliver a message to the city, you would take three days. He spends a day. So you know that business, when you have a message to deliver, but you really don't want to give it? So you just put it out in the way that is least accessible? He's angry and annoyed, and, and maybe you're never there, but I am sometimes. I really have to work at recognizing it. The thing I really notice in this story is there is no affection, love, or kindness in what Jonah does. And I notice that affection, love, or kindness lets you talk about things that are tough. In marriages where you are different and you clash, you know, the temptation is to let the conflict be the biggest thing, but what rescues you is humor, yes, and affection, love, respect. And the question at the end is, will Jonah come to his senses? Will Jonah change his mind or his heart? And the Bible often does this. Now, I think, isn't this a funny book about repentance? It's not saying repent, repent, repent. It's actually asking you what's most important in this story. Is it that you get your way? Or is it that these people that God loves, that they get a chance with God? What's most important? I notice that the Bible often does this. When we want to be direct, sometimes it is not. Often, Jesus will tell us a story. You know the story of the prodigal son? There's a guy who says that all of us, at any point in our lives, are playing one of the roles here. There is the father who is waiting for someone else to repent. Yep, out of love. There is a son who is running away like mad. Yep. And there is a bitter older brother who's going... Not fair, should be different. The writer says, writers, a number of writers say, at any one point in time, you are playing one of those roles. For at least two of them, 
you would want to consider what repentance looks like. So, you've had a primer of uh, Jonah. You've had me rave on and say, hey, a little bit like Donald Trump, like the Simpsons. This is talking about repentance. It is asking a question of us. But the best way of giving time to a book like the book of Jonah is to do that. So I want to read you a story, the story of Jonah, in kind of verse. And I want you to invite you, I'll pray before I start, to look in yourself. Who are the people who are in this role? The ones you feel like you can't understand, the ones that it's easy to write off. Who are they? What's going on in you? Use this as a mirror. And so, God, I, Holy Spirit, I invite you to work amongst us. Bring to light the things in us that you would love to soften and change, that overturn. We would like our lives to be overturned continually for you. So take these mere words, Holy Spirit, and speak. Amen. <clears throat> Here comes the poem. Jonah didn't mind using the N-word. Ninevites, he grunted, the word like a curse on his lips. Why would God want to save Ninevites? They're cruel, they're brutal, they're hardly human, and I will not play a part in their rescue. Jonah didn't mind using the N-word. Ninevites, he grumbled as he boarded a boat for Tarshish. Conquerors, oppressors, monsters, not men. I will not go, and that's all there is to it. They will not profit from this prophet's words. And the man of God runs away from God. Jonah didn't mind using the N-word. Ninevites, he whispered as he eyed each sailor up and down. Dull, base, and beast-like. Some of these sailors have that look. I'd better watch my back. Jonah didn't mind using the N-word. Ninevites, he explained to the sailors as a storm swallowed up the ship. I won't take God's message to the Ninevites. That's why we're in this mess. Throw me into the water and your troubles will be over. Ah! Jonah didn't mind using the N-word. Ninevites he cursed as he sank like a stone in the sea. Uncaring, unfeeling, without an ounce of compassion, I knew that they would be the death of me. Jonah didn't mind using the N-word. Ninevites, he sighed as he sat in the belly of the beast. All right then, I'll go and talk to the Ninevites. I don't like them, I don't want to, but I guess I've been saved for a reason. Jonah didn't mind using the N-word. Ninevites, he muttered as he walked around their city. 
They look funny. They smell funny. They talk funny. But I'll do what I have to. I'll do what I promised. Jonah didn't mind using the N-word. Ninevites, he cried, forcing the word out as cheerfully as he could. You have 40 days to change your ways. God will change them for you. It was a big city. Three days to walk through. Jonah took one. Forty days. Ninevite overturned. And the Ninevites repented as one. Jonah didn't mind using the N-word. Ninevites, he sneered as he climbed a hill outside the city. They're faking it. They haven't really changed. And when they go back to their ways, I'll see them destroyed after all. Jonah didn't mind using the N-word. Ninevites, he grinned as he sat in the shade of a little tree. Come on, Ninevites, I'm waiting to see you fall, waiting to see God's vengeance. But in the night, God sent a worm to kill the little tree. Jonah didn't mind using the N-word. Ninevites, he swore as he looked at his little tree. They're responsible for this. I'm sure they're wicked and vile. They care for nothing. And that's when he heard God's voice. God had a problem with the N-word. But the J-word was driving him crazy. Jonah, God sighed. Jonah, don't be angry. The people in that city are people just like you, 120,000 men, women, and children. And with a sly smile, he adds, and their cattle. If the death of a tree is, not, is important, should I not be concerned with their fate too? And that's where the story ends. Not with an answer, but with a question. Well, we love whomever God loves, whether we like them or not. Jonah didn't mind using the N word. Do you?